Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn. And in today's show, I'm talking to Chandi Wyant about walking the Italian section of the Via Francigena and her lessons from her solo pilgrimage. Chandi talks of how Florence found a place in her heart and why she decided to make her life there and how she found healing through walking for 40 days, even though she is not religious. I've talked about secular pilgrimage before on this show and I think it's true for so many of us. When life becomes unbearable, walking can be a way through. The mind can heal when the body is moving, and being in nature helps us realise there are many reasons to carry on. We also talk about how the gifts of pilgrimage often show up later than we expect, and the joys and challenges of solo travel. I hope you enjoy the interview with Chandi. Chandi Wyant is an author, a Florentine Renaissance historian, and an accredited guide to Italy's museums. Her latest book is Return to Glow, a pilgrimage of transformation in Italy. Welcome, Chandi. Thank you, Joe, for having me. Oh, I'm excited to talk to you today. So let's start with a kind of crazy question in which you're American, but Italy is your passion. So what drew you to Italy in the first place and the Renaissance period in particular? Well, you're correct that I'm American. I was born and raised in California, although I'm also British. My mother is British, as were my grandparents and my great-grandparents, everyone back on my mother's side. When I was 19, I budget backpacked around Europe. This was back in the 80s. And when I got to Florence, I was just astounded by the beauty of the city. And I thought the language was the loveliest thing I'd ever heard. And I became determined to learn to speak Italian. What was interesting on this trip is I went all over Southern Europe for for six months. And at the end, I, I was in Portugal. And I thought, I've got to get back to Florence one more time before I fly home. And I did a three-day train ride that was before high-speed trains to get back to Florence. And I didn't speak a word of Italian. This was before the internet. And I thought, okay, how do I figure out what language school I could attend here? And I opened a phone book and and managed, I'm not quite sure how, because I didn't speak Italian, but to find the schools for for foreigners that existed. And I went knocking on their doors and asked if they were affiliated with a program in the U.S. so I could get credit. I hadn't started university yet. And I found a school, got myself signed up, and I returned. That was in September. I returned by by January to spend six months there learning the language as best I could and taking some other courses. And so that that was what kickstarted it. And then over the years, I just returned in various ways. And it wasn't until I was 40 that I went back to get a second master's degree, this time in Florentine Renaissance history. 
So what is it about Florence that keeps drawing you back? Well, in my opinion, it's the most beautiful city in the world, the most special because it holds one fourth of the world's great art in its historic center. And you can walk across the historic center in 20 minutes. It's very pedestrian friendly. Now that I'm living there, I will say that the weather isn't necessarily the best compared to where I come from in California. I'm used to a very mild climate. So Florence in the summer, I find a little bit difficult, <laughs> but those are things that come up once you you are living there with the reality. There's the allure, you know, there's when you travel, you can have continuously a sense of la dolce vita and traveling is very different than actually trying to, to carve out a living. So I've, I'm getting... All, all sides <laughs> of it at this point in my life. Yeah, I'll never forget seeing David for the first time. I think, you know, you can see so much of this art on online or in books. And until you see it in person, it, it's not as powerful. And I remember going in there and seeing David and also seeing Michelangelo's Slaves. I think it's at the Academia. Yeah. Yeah. And just realizing that the scale of things and at the same time, there was a display of Michelangelo's inventions, his machines. I was backpacking at the time and just like, wow, this is it just it did affect me. And I still remember being there and and also the stripes on the I think the basilica, you know, the striped marble, I guess it is on the basilica. And just as you say, the visual effect of Florence and the river and these things stick in your mind. And I imagine you've walked around there at all times of day and seen all of these beautiful things. It really has an amazing abundance of beauty in, in all different lights, different times of the year. Like you said, the polychrome marble, the way the river changes color, the view of the city from Piazzale Michelangelo at at sunset, it can, it can be very dreamy. So it's interesting because, of course, your book is about finding, refinding yourself. So let's start with what is the Via Francigena and why did you decide to walk this Italian stretch? The Via Francigena is a pilgrimage route from the Middle Ages. It starts in England, in Canterbury and crosses France and Switzerland before entering Italy at the Grand San Bernardo Pass. It's a lot less known than the one in Spain, referred to as the Camino. The Via Francigena is based on the descriptions of an Archbishop of Canterbury called Sigeric the Sirius, who walked it in 990 AD. And he needed to walk to Rome to receive the polyum from the Pope, which is, which is a cloak that you need to obtain when when you become archbishop. So he took detailed notes on the route. And in the 1980s, the Italian researchers used Sidgwick's diary to revive the route. And it started becoming a little bit known in the 90s. When I walked in in 2009, it was still in its infancy. And I decided I wanted to walk 40 days to Rome because I wanted to heal in the wake of a divorce and a traumatic illness. And I knew that 40 days had that amount of time had had a spiritual connotation in, in, in various religions. So I chose a point in 
northern Italy that I figured would be about 40 days from Rome. Oh, by the way, the, the name Francigena means coming from the Frankish lands. People stumble a bit on, on that name. And then I chose it over the Camino because I speak Italian. I don't speak Spanish. So I was going to be doing it alone and I wanted to be able to interact with, with the locals. That's, you know, it's particularly nice to be able to do that when you're traveling solo. So what were some of the highlights of the way in terms of places you walked through? I would say the lesser known places. I'm quite familiar with Tuscany but I wasn't familiar with the places in Lazio that were on the route. For people that don't know, Lazio is the region just south of Tuscany where Rome is. And I I really enjoyed discovering Lago di Bolsena, which is the largest volcanic lake in Europe. The route led me along the edge of that lake through some wheat fields and red poppies and when I got to the town of Bolsena, I stayed with nuns there and I discovered the church of Santa Cristina there, which was very interesting. It's named for a girl, Cristina, who lived in the third century and converted to Christianity when she was about 12 and then she was persecuted for it. And apparently she survived being thrown into Lake Bolsena with a stone around her neck. And there's a altar in the grotto of the church that apparently has that same stone and there's other miracles that that apparently occurred in that church that that made it a site for for pilgrimage in its in its own right apart from also being on the the Via Francigena and then I had a, a great experience with the nuns there at the convent and then moving further into lots closer to Rome I discovered the town of Sutri which I basically hadn't even heard of and Sutri is built on a tufaceous cliff, and it was one of the last strongholds of the Etruscans. It has an ancient amphitheater that's older than the Colosseum, which apparently could be Etruscan. So it could have been the inspiration for the amphitheaters that the Romans later built. And I had also there, I had a really wonderful experience with the nuns. I love that you had a great time with the nuns. I, I do find that I call myself spiritual, not religious, and I have a degree in theology and I love staying in religious places and visiting religious places. And uh, it sounds like it, is it something similar for you? Because obviously 40 days has a religious symbolism. You're staying with the nuns. This is a religious pilgrimage. What was the spiritual angle for you? Well, I'm not religious. And at first I felt like a bit of an imposter some people I met, Italians I met on the route would say, oh, you must be really Catholic to be walking <laughs> to Rome. And it was a aspect of the pilgrimage that I hadn't thought about when I set out to do it. And I, I've, I traveled around the world quite extensively in my early 20s. And I picked up aspects of different religions and spiritualities that I encountered. And I feel like I just have this universal outlook to, to spirituality. But one thing that happened with, with the nuns in Bolsena is I went to mass with them. It seemed to be the right thing to do when they invited me to go, even though I'm not very familiar with Catholic masses. But I realized from 
spending some time with them doing that, I because I had an extra day in Bolsena to to rest up, I realized that I had memorized without really knowing it, the Ave Maria Lode. And then I would start reciting that to myself when I was walking alone to, it, it, I found it comforting. And then what was interesting is how these gifts show up later in your life. Because speaking of spirituality, my parents were utterly non-religious and I was raised without, I mean, not just no religion, but no spirituality. And about four years ago, my father was passing away at the house in California, and it was only my mother and I present. And we saw that he was, you know, he'd been in in bed and we'd been caring for him for weeks or months, but he started exhibiting the signs that the hospice people told us would happen. So we knew the passing away process was starting And I noticed that my mom just didn't have anything specific to do around that because of her utter lack of religiosity and spirituality. So I said, okay, well, what if we sing songs? And so we did that as he was passing. And then when he actually passed, I noticed there was still this void because of not having any religious or spiritual practice. And for me, it was too much of an absence. So I found myself saying the Ave Maria Lode in Italian. It was just something I could offer in the moment. And my mother said, well, I I don't know what you said, but it sounded really beautiful. So yeah, it's just, there's a lot of gifts that came out of the pilgrimage that just percolate up years later. I love that. And I do think that there are a lot of frameworks that religions have for these important times in your life, whether it is a bar mitzvah or marriage or death and that kind of thing. It's, it is interesting, isn't it, how we almost need that structure to come back to. And I mean, pilgrimage itself is, you know, you were seeking and you went on a pilgrimage, even if you didn't necessarily know that you didn't resonate with the religious reason to do it, you still knew from some kind of deep human need that you could heal yourself by walking for a longer time, I guess. Exactly. And I think particularly choosing to do it solo gives you the solitude and reflection that you need to drop from your head into your heart. And on that solo aspect, I mean, I know having done solo things myself, it's sometimes difficult to balance the solo experience with meeting other pilgrims on the route. So how did you balance that? And were there any encounters with people? You've mentioned the nuns, but did you meet other pilgrims on the way? What's interesting is because I was doing it when it was still in its infancy, I met a total of eight other pilgrims the whole time. Mm. So if you contrast that with the Camino where you meet thousands or see thousands every day, apparently I haven't, I haven't done it. So there was a lot of solo time. (laughs) And so basically a need to balance it didn't really come up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's quite good. I mean, and in that way, did you miss other people? Did you have to find ways to like talk to people in the evening when you got food or like was being alone what you wanted it to be? It was. I I knew that I, I mean, I never ever questioned 
when I received this <laughs> spiritual message to walk across Italy when I was in this dark moment back in, I was in Colorado at the time with, with the traumatic illness and divorce. And I was in, in this particularly dark moment, this message came walk across Italy. And from that moment, I never asked myself, oh, do I want to bring a friend? It, it was very clear to me it needed to be solo. And, and I didn't really go into it with, with expectations of, of seeing a lot of, of other pilgrims or having that camaraderie. I didn't really know for sure what to expect. But the nice thing is because I do speak Italian, I could go into a trattoria for, for dinner and chat. I, I found that there was times when I became quite a chiacchierone, which is like a big chatterbox. <laughs> I would be in very small places off the beaten path. So that it was maybe often a trattoria that was quite, quite empty, or I was, I was there after hours and whoever was working there just had time. You know what I mean? It was not a fast paced <laughs> restaurant situation. And so there was times when I, when I had a lot of nice chats with proprietors yeah, I think sometimes we think we just want to be alone all the time and then we we realise we need people. I mean, I think the pandemic has done that. I'm an introvert. I love being on my own. And yet I have had enough alone time in this pandemic. I'm quite looking forward to being sociable again. So it's good that you had that balance. But you said that you heard this uh, message, however you, that feeling came to you, you know, walk across Italy. So what what were the most challenging parts emotionally and or physically and what fears did you have to overcome? Well, the most challenging physically was unfortunately I developed plantar fasciitis within the first maybe like four, three or four days into it. I started having symptoms it's a very painful foot condition. It basically feels like shards of glass are being stabbed into your heels as you walk. I didn't know what it was. I hadn't had it before. I learned on about the seventh day what it was and learned that you're supposed to stop the activity that created it, but I wasn't prepared to abandon the pilgrimage. So I had to deal with a pretty painful foot condition for basically the the duration <laughs> and fears. Yes. So I recount in the book that solo travel for me has been a way of overcoming the fear of violence against women. I, I had that fear starting when I was a teen because of a, a stalking incident. And I really started pushing myself to travel alone after that first backpacking trip around Europe when I was 19, it, it helped me insist to myself that I wasn't going to be disabled by that fear. And it helped me see that most people out there are good, but there are times, whether it was on the, the pilgrimage or, or other solo trips where the fear comes up and I just have to dig deep each time to find courage. And what I notice is if I pay close attention to myself and to my surroundings and to others, my intuitive skills are kicked into high gear. And solo travel gives me a wonderful opportunity to fine tune my intuition. And I think that's the best thing you've got when you put yourself out there solo in the world. 
Yeah, I love that because it's so sad that many women will never go anywhere and put themselves at potentially a very small risk. I mean, as you said, most people are wonderful. And I've had the same, I've traveled a lot on my own. And for example, you take precautions, right? So I, I traveled in the Middle East when in my teens and I wore a wedding ring on my wedding finger and so people would say oh where's your husband or whatever and I'd say oh he's back at home and you know have my ring and it was people would respect that and obviously I was lying (laughs) at the time but it it was a way that helped and I used to dress in a modest way and for example hiking alone I wouldn't hike at night for example. So we can take the precautions, but like you said, overcoming that fear has given you so much more than if you had just stayed at home and been entirely safe. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Travel has enriched my life so much. And perhaps the most enriching times have, have been the solo journeys. In fact, do you think we have to put ourselves at a little bit of risk, push our comfort zone in order to experience those things? Absolutely. Getting getting out of the, the comfort zone can result in so, so many gifts. I mean, for me, travel, it's given me more confidence. It's driven me to be deeply tolerant and constantly curious. I just I love that when travel is done in an in-depth way and if you can have open-minded conversations with people of different beliefs and like you said abandon your comfort zone and and seek cross-cultural knowledge for me it is is so significant it's a great way to promote cross-cultural understanding and, and tolerance. And the, these ideas crystallized for me on my first trip back when I was 19. And they're, and they're always way markers for my travels. Mm, you do mention quite a lot of delicious food in the book. I wondered if there was anything you particularly remember or a memorable occasion on your pilgrimage. I mean, sometimes it's the simplest things really important like for me when the, on the pilgrimage I did from London to Canterbury it was literally a gin and tonic at the end of walking 40 kilometers that was very memorable oh fantastic ah <laughs> oh, I love gin and tonics in the summer in in Florence when it's so over the top hot you know you can't you just I can't even do wine because it's so hot I need a gin and tonic with a lot of ice a lot of lemon it's funny that you mentioned uh something that that stood out at the end of a long trek because because as you asked the question I I started thinking about when I got to Rome and suddenly I had so many choices compared to so one challenging thing that happened with food it's funny some people who read my book they say oh my goodness Chandi you were hungry the whole time (laughs) and how does that happen in Italy right but what I learned is if your destination is going to be one of these tiny little one horse towns you know with one grocery store and maybe a trattoria everything is going to close like you know happened back in the 1950s, right? I mean, Florence now or Rome accommodates tourists eating at all hours, but traditionally things close down. And if you as a pilgrim don't make it into that village by lunchtime, 
you can really be out of luck with, with getting food. So then I arrive in Rome and the, the abundance of choices. And I went to the office at St. Peter's to get my testimony. And as I walked into that office, who was walking out, but this Italian man who I, he had been walking with an, with another Italian man. And I had met up with the two of them in, uh, it was, it was Southern Tuscany. They were staying in the, in the same place I was. And we had a nice long talk. They were two of the eight pilgrims I met and we walked for a couple days together and then didn't, you know, they, they were much more in shape and could walk much, many, many more kilometers than I could. And so they went on their way. And I, that's when I stayed in, in Bolsena. But anyway, one of them was coming out of the testimony office as I was walking in. And so that was a fun moment. And we decided to get lunch together. And so we, you know, walked down the Tiber River to Trastevere, which is, you know, a lovely neighborhood in, in Rome and picked an outdoor table at a trattoria. And I remember he just said to me, voi un po' di vino, would you like a little bit of wine? And I just thought, oh, those words just sound so, just the epitome of, yes, what I want. I want to sit in this outdoor trattoria at the end of my trip, you know, with this unexpected friend and have un po' di vino. Oh, that's brilliant. And I do think the fact that a lot of places are closed is part of the Italian and in many senses, the European ethos, which is life and God are more important than commerce. And that is one very big different thing culturally to America. Like I feel like I've been to quite a lot of places in America and you can always get food and you can always get coffee. You know, there's always (laughs) somewhere, isn't there, where you can get something oh, yeah and 24 that, but, hours <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you in fact it's difficult to be without food obviously there's poverty but it, it that is a very different thing that I, I feel Americans don't I mean even here in the UK we do have a lot more more places to go 24 7 but it is definitely not like America so that is a big thing for people but I I did want to ask you and it could be a metaphorical question but what did you carry with you and what did you leave behind on your pilgrimage? Yeah thanks for that question. I admit in my book that I was having a trouble with obsessing or I think it's called ruminating by therapists, but with the the process of going through the divorce, I, I was, I was struggling with that kind of going these stories in my head, right. That, that I couldn't turn off. And so one of my goals with this solo 40 day walk was to be able to overcome that, let, let go of that. And, and I did, I really did see a shift in that. And then a physical thing that I carried that that I'll mention was turned out to be the best thing I brought were my trekking poles because they I didn't realize that there would be ferocious dogs leaping out at me. And the trekking poles were such a great barrier for that and really helped me feel safe in that way. And then going through different wooded areas, I was told to look out for vipers. And I was told if I 
pound my trekking poles vigorously as I went that it warns the snakes. So that was very comforting as well. <laughs> I just I don't think people think about dogs and snakes in Italy. I mean, that just sounds feral and wild, not like Tuscany and Lazio. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. In each region, some some of that happened. I started up in the region of Emilia Romagna, and I had to go over the Apennines to drop down into Tuscany, and that's where I was warned about vipers. Wow, so that's exciting, really. And do you think that you left anything behind on the pilgrimage? Was it gone when you finished? I would say it. The significant piece of, uh, you know, emotionally that, that I left behind was the tendency to, to obsess and, and recount these, these stories in my head. And there, there was a moment leaving Siena when I, I was able to view my ex-husband in, in, in a much more gentle understanding way. And I literally just felt like, I almost just dropped to my knees with with gratitude. Well, I think that's really important. And that's why I think we do these trips, because we realize there is no other way to deal with it. Like, sure, you mentioned a therapist. You could spend a lot of time in therapy. Or if you walk for 40 days, you can get over quite a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then the process of writing the memoir was so wonderful with the extra depth of understanding that I received from working with all of that material, with the gifts of the pilgrimage, and going more deeply into them in order to recount them on the page. There there were a lot more insights that, that came out from that process as well that that were wonderful. So did you, while you were walking, how did you record your thoughts at the time? Were you, were you journaling every night or something? Yes, I, I brought with me a couple small notebooks and a couple pens. I, in fact, did not own a smartphone at that time. And I didn't have a, a I had a, a little old style cell phone that was just for emergency phone calls, but I didn't have a smartphone or a GPS or or even maps. And I needed to be very lightweight. So I just tried to fit everything into, into these small, lightweight journals. And I had, as far as finding my way, I had printed out directions that I found in Italian on one of the websites about about the route and and I would follow those printed directions at at times when if there wasn't the little yellow pilgrim spray painted on a on a rock to indicate the way. I think it's um, as you said it, it's become a bit more organized now and that you can also get route guides and uh, I think maybe they're still spray painted but <laughs> on the way but there's definitely I think more of a route now. They're they're always working to revive the route, um, particularly in in Italy. I I hear that it's 
better signposted in Italy than in France. I don't know if that's correct, but that's what I've heard, that it's it's really in Italy where they've worked very hard to revive it. And in fact, I'm not sure which entity in Italy is pushing this, but um, pushing for the route to become a World Heritage UNESCO site. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, it is a really meaningful route, I think. In fact, when I finished my own pilgrimage at Canterbury, there is a, a rock there with the beginning of the Francigena. And I was like, I could just head off again. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe I will one day, but it was so funny because I was like, I just finished one and here's the beginning of another. (laughs) Right. You're not done yet. (laughs) No, but do do you feel that? Do you feel like the gifts of the pilgrimage, obviously they've brought you to where you are now. Do you feel an attraction to doing such a trip again? If I was called to do it, I feel that these these pilgrimage routes are more meaningful if if you have a deep need to walk it, if you have something you want to release or something to to ponder about yourself, a shift you want to make in your life. Otherwise, if I'm not in that space and if I'm not called to do it, I'd I'd rather just do my hikes on on weekends does mm-hmm. that make sense yeah they have to have a meaning in some way although a bit like you I mean I found a lot of meaning month a month or two after the walk uh, as in I thought you know I when I finished my pilgrimage I, I was a bit disappointed because I hadn't had some huge insight into life but six weeks two months later I had a lot of insights it just it had just taken a while before they emerged well maybe you found that in your writing process definitely more more emerged in in the process of of writing and yeah I can see what you're saying I mean someone could just just set off because they're just curious about walking a pilgrimage route and maybe they don't have the strength of of the need that that I personally had for making shifts personally, emotionally. But then, like you said, they could just do it for fun and curiosity and but then actually have more profound gifts come out of it than than they than they thought. For me, I just it just worked, you know, to to have that compelling reason to do it, that that message I wanted to follow when when I was in a difficult space. Yeah, absolutely. So your book is Return to Glow, uh, but this is the books and travel show. So apart from your own book, what are a few books that you recommend either about pilgrimage or Italy or travel in general? I have a handful to recommend. I really love the genre of travel memoir. And I love it if it's combined with lyrical writing that that shows a mastery of of the craft. And I would recommend Four Seasons in Rome by Anthony Doerr. The subtitle is On Twins, Insomnia, and the Biggest Funeral in the History of the World. And what's, what's interesting is usually a memoir needs a narrative arc, but when you are as good at your craft as Anthony Doerr is, you, you can actually get away with not a lot of narrative arc. I think this one 
is more to be read to appreciate the craft than, I mean, the topic of Rome is, is like icing on the cake, but the actual cake for me in this book is, is the exquisite prose. It's his ability is like the literary equivalent of a Beethoven piano concerto. And another that in the same genre travel memoir or, or, growing up abroad memoir, maybe let's call it Alexandra Fuller's Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight. It's it's a memoir of growing up in Rhodesia in the 1970s. And her descriptions of life in Africa, uh, it's just lush, it's it's vi- violent, it's it's intensely vibrant, and the writing is just gorgeous. And she doesn't describe a a gilded expat life. She has this wonderful device of writing from a child's point of view. And it allows her to address the racism in in post-colonial Africa and these dark family dynamics without any excuses. And she just has this ability to write humorously about really challenging things. And that I found very impressive. But her descriptions of Africa to me, are the most evocative descriptions of Africa ever written. And another that I'm reading right now on a different genre, history, my, which is <laughs> my other favorite, The Saint and the Sultan, which is about the meeting between St. Francis of Assisi and the Sultan of Egypt when St. Francis travels to Egypt during the Fifth Crusade which he, he didn't support and he hoped to prevent the violence and to end conflicts between the two religions. And it's, it's just brilliant because you see that St. Francis and the Sultan Malik al-Kamil both really cared about peace and were operating on a totally different plane than, than those who were battling in in the crusades and the meeting between them is so poignant it has so much to teach us about the importance of breaking down stereotypes and engaging in dialogue instead of demagoguery and i also want to mention writings these compilations of women travelers like there's there's a handful there's one called maiden voyages edited by um, mary morris that, that compile writings of, of remarkable women travelers, like from the 1600s to the 1900s. And I think it's really worth seeking out these anthologies because they show us that courageous women were out there hundreds of years ago, and they were bucking tradition and setting aside societal expectations and traveling to far-flung places and writing in a genre that that was, you know, overwhelmingly masculine. And a lot of their, their travel writing and their accomplishments weren't really brought to light for, for a long time. So I think it's it's nice to, to pay attention to that. And I just want to mention a film if I can. I saw a documentary. Yeah. This I just saw this wonderful documentary recently called Maiden. And it's about the first all-female sailboat crew on the Whitbread Round the World race. 
in, it was in 1989. And the concept of an all-female crew was considered inconceivable in the world of open ocean yacht racing. And this, this first ever all-women team, just what they faced, I mean, this corrosive sexism, it's, it's, it's pretty unbelievable. But the film is absolutely riveting. I mean, you are on the edge of your seat. That's fantastic. I'm looking forward to that. And it's great to have book recommendations and film recommendations. So thank you. So where can people find you and your book online? My website is paradiseofexiles.com. And on there, you can find information about the tours in Florence that I offer that I was offering before COVID and I hope I'll be able to offer again soon. I, I am a licensed guide to Italy's museums. And then you can also find blog posts on there about, about life in Italy. And then my book Return to Glow is available in Kindle or paperback on Amazon and at some independent bookstores. And I'm also on Instagram at Paradise of Exiles. And I have a Facebook page also Paradise of Exiles. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Chandi. That was great. Thank you, Joe. I love your podcasts. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.